0: Hey, Ben.
1: How's it going? Hey, it's going good. Hey, you know what I saw today? What's that? I saw my first shoot since COVID started kind of gearing up. So as I've told you, I don't think we've talked about it on the show, uh, but I know I've told you personally, uh, we like to take my son to Franklin Canyon. It's a great hike, and a lot of people bring their kids there. And it's also where they shot the opening of uh, the Andy Griffith show and also the opening of Silence of the Lambs, which kind of explains why I like it. It's kind of the... (laughs) the the teeter totter of all things, great place. But uh, today we took him there, and uh, a, a feeling that I haven't felt in a long time, which is like, God damn it, I want to park there. But there's a frigging condor with a rain tower on it, uh, you know, oh, yeah. uh, being being set up, and it, and it actually warmed my heart. I was like, I was really happy. All the crews seemed to be wearing uh, masks and and uh, adhering to safety protocols. There was like a, a COVID testing station. at at the crew parking lot and uh, you know I I was just happy to see uh, any production happening at all I was happy to have that familiar feeling of God damn it, fuck, I want to park there. For,
2: for all our listeners who don't understand the words that Ben just said, uh, Condor is kind of like a giant uh, boom lift, the uh, man lift. It's, oh, they're often used in construction, and they're also used by the motion picture industry uh, for things like rain birds, which essentially you need to fake some rain, big sprinklers up on, on pipes with water going to them so you can make rain in a big area that uh, looks good on camera because, of course, regular rain, really, really hard to photograph and pretty inconvenient and and but well, it's kind of hard to plan around when it's gonna rain y- you can just get god on the phone and say hey you know what uh can we get some rain over here that's that's pretty much how it works i did, right? I did
1: do it once actually on a, on a short film that i made in college where uh rain was a was a plot point mm. and granted i was in college in florida yeah and it uh, oh, rains we every day f- there we were faking rain for every scene and we were prepared to fake rain for this one scene but then it just the sky opened up and it was like okay, let's just make sure the lights aren't going to get soaked and uh, let's roll, and it, and it looked great. Uh, and in case any of you guys are
2: wondering, here uh, the person who was just speaking—that's Ben Rock. Ben Rock is a director, a producer. He uh, makes podcast type of stuff and television and movies. And uh, and I'm Ilya Friedman. I, I run a company called Hot Rod Cameras, and I also do some technical consulting for Hollywood. And here is here it is me doing our
1: introductions because yeah, we, we should tell people who we are. Yeah. <laughs> we need to tell. We need to use this uh, this giant platform we have to. Uh, yeah, you know, it's to, it's
2: growing. It's growing. It's a growing platform for us. We were, we already were doing well, but the the numbers are keeping going up and this month thought it might be lower but no nope, it's already caught up so,
1: so yeah. well and it's going to go up even further with this interview with Julie Taymor who is one of the more fascinating people I've talked to in a long time
2: yeah Julie Taymor she is a director and she's also very known for her history in theater and of course uh, you
1: know I think she directed The Lion King yes the, the, the- friggin Lion King on Broadway which uh, big, of course, big hit show.
2: Yeah. Broke all kinds of incredible records and went on yeah. to, to run all, I think all over the world. It's like, yeah, she's got a really interesting uh, international past too. I, I, I can't, I haven't heard the interview. I wasn't, didn't get to be there. So I, I'm looking forward uh, to this so you, one too.
1: You're on the edge of your seat now. I, I am. I, I'm, yeah. really I'm really excited. Okay. What I think is cool about Julie Taylor is so she has a new movie coming out called Gloria's that's going to be on Amazon and it is definitely one of those movies that is going to be up for Oscar consideration. It stars Julianne Moore. Uh, it's, it's, it's beautifully made, and it's about uh, Gloria Steinem, and they've chosen a really interesting way to go about telling a biopic, which is almost to kind of take this character and split them into a thousand people, so it's like it's like Malkovich Malkovich, Malkovich Malkovich
2: Malkovich no. Malkovich not not
1: not not in a, not in a funny way but in a, in a I think a really ingenious cinematic way where it, it's like her as a little kid her as a teenager her as a young woman her as you know as as someone in her 30s some and, and then Julianne Moore kind of covering you know probably like late 30s through uh current day and uh they're all on a bus Filmed in black and white, they're all in a bus together, and they and they converse with each other through the whole thing. It's really interesting. It's an interesting conceit to think like, you know, what would what would you say to your younger self? It's a really cool idea. And uh, Julie Taymor, I feel like, uh, and, and I, I'll let the interview speak for itself, but I feel like she goes into ideas that any filmmaker, any cinematographer, any director could really uh, learn a lot from her uh, in terms of talking about color and motif and the way she researches how something is going to look and uh, she's really awesome i I have often wondered why there aren't more theater people in film and vice versa and it's interesting to hear her kind of take on on that kind of stuff but before we get to the interview uh, we want to talk about our close focus topic today which is yeah
2: i think it's really interesting that the highest paid number one paid actor in hollywood Dwayne, The Rock Johnson. Uh, is he the highest paid currently? Yeah, he is. Uh, well, I think, the, I don't know if it's per movie, but I think they that he was listed at like $89 million in 2019 or something like that in the in, oh, wow. in the hierarchy of like who made the most money, who had the most releases, who got the most paydays. I, I mean, uh, good for him. Good for him. He's, 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 Get it. he's getting some money. Well, um, I think it was today he decided to get political and he gave an endorsement to joe biden and kamala harris it did see that it, and what i think is really interesting is that i don't know how much uh political sway he has uh, out there but as the number one actor in hollywood you know i i'm he's got fans he's got fans from jumanji and fast and furious and all these these other sort of franchises and things that he's done not to mention ballers i'm sure professional wrestling and hbo series ballers uh, but Scorpion King, Scorpion King. The reaction, and I, I can't tell if it's Russian bots or what, but the reaction from Twitter was furious and uh, universal. It seemed like there was a whole bunch of people who uh, were just like cancel culture immediately. Like you know, they didn't like that Dwayne Johnson said that he wants to vote for a different person than I guess some of his fans would like to vote for. Well, and
1: interestingly too, like uh, there were rumors that he was going to possibly run for some political office. And knowing literally nothing about Dwayne Johnson, what was rumored was that he was going to kind of skew conservative. A lot of people were saying he was he was a conservative person. I was sort of like, uh, it'll be like an accentless uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger style situation. So I was actually a little surprised to see that he uh, went the other way. In his endorsement video, he says that uh, he's an
2: independent and he's still a longtime independent. And he's he's voted for both sides. So. Uh, he thinks that uh, the the Biden Harris ticket is is uh, is where he wants to go, but the cancel culture of people who then found out that his political affiliation was different than theirs was like, well, it was nice knowing you. Stay out of politics. Never gonna watch one of your things
1: again. Never gonna like you know support you again. And to which I I I have a resounding meh. Yeah. Whatever. Well, how much you want to bet those people are gonna watch? whatever Fast and Furious thing uh, Dwayne Johnson does in the future. He, yes, I,
2: I'm fairly certain as well, too. But then it makes me wonder if it's the reaction is so uh, seems one sided. I mean, there there are some people supporting him, of course, uh, you know, who are uh, fans of the uh of the democratic ticket but what is the benefit to the celebrity to make their political affiliation known to the general population do you think that uh, you know as many people as that that might hurt do you think they, they win over those people you know the the other group of people to now become a bigger fan of i mean is it a zero-sum gain? what what is the what's the motivation do you think for uh you know people who are not in politics to get involved and do this sort of endorsement
1: well i think that when you become that rich and that powerful And you have a voice that goes that far. A lot of people want to say, okay, I want to, I want to have a voice in culture now. Like, you know, I, obviously I've paid my dues and, and this many people are excited about everything I do. And, you know, they're probably surrounded. I'm not, I'm not, this isn't, I don't mean this disparagingly about Dwayne Johnson, but they're kind of surrounded with yes people. And I will say that, you know. As someone who is uh, un- unreservedly not in the pro Trump camp, when I hear that somebody is super pro Trump, I do kind of put a little check mark in my mind. I'm like, yeah, I think I might avoid their stuff. Uh, the truth is, it's really not hard to avoid things with Scott Bayo in them. So it-, it hasn't really been that complicated <laughs> for me personally. Sure. I don't want to say cancel people, you know, and I also feel like we're in a time right now where both sides and it's clear which side I'm on, believe the stakes of this are kind of life and death. And I think that uh, Dwayne Johnson, if the entire world canceled him tomorrow, he would still probably be worth hundreds of millions of dollars. So the fuck does he care if he gets canceled? But the real truth is, Always remember this. And I say this as an avid Twitter user and I follow people and I've made friends on Twitter who I've become friends with in the real world. And I think Twitter can be awesome. I love film Twitter. I love horror Twitter. There's a lot to like about Twitter, but Twitter is not the world and it is full of bots and they have never kind of come up with a way to even figure out who all the bots are. And, you know, it's happened to me uh, once or twice where I remember I retweeted a political thing that I believe Bernie Sanders said probably five years ago. And immediately I was besieged by bots. And you would look at it and it would look like a normal profile, except it was set up, you know, two months earlier or whatever. And, and, and uh, I eventually was like, hey, look, you know, like it's not that I avoid talking about that stuff on social media, but I deleted the tweet because I'm just like, I don't need this aggravation in my life. Dwayne Johnson, you know, I'm sure he's like, bring me the death threats, bro. I don't care. And I wonder if Dwayne Johnson also, if the calculation on his part, I, and I'm I'm taking him at his word that he's basically favoring Biden and trying to throw his weight behind that. Is that he might incentivize some younger people to go out and vote? You know, he's 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 beloved by the younger generation, which is not an easy thing to do for a guy in his fifties. But also, you know, a a giant uh, wad of nonstop muscle that he is. You know, like who who does these humongous action movies? You know, when when you and I were kids, you know, people like Schwarzenegger were doing that, and Dwayne Johnson is. Is that guy, but he's also an amazing actor. <laughs> like he's he's I mean, I, I don't know that he's gonna win any Oscars, but he's really good at what he does. And I remember when we got Disney Plus and we and I had never seen Moana, we were trying to show it to my son. I was like, Dwayne Johnson, you stay in your lane. You sing. You're in it you're in an animated thing. Oh God, quite, stay in quite your well lane, too, man. too,
2: actually. No, he, he, he's, he I mean he
1: pulls it up. Look, really they well. didn't they didn't give him a song that was like the heart it didn't require like opera like range, but he, sure. he carries it. Yeah. He does a good job and he's funny and he's charismatic and he's charming. So, you know, I say uh, screw him. I mean, he, he can do whatever he wants. He can do whatever he wants. What does he care? Yeah, you're, you're right. I think it's great that he got to have a conversation
2: with uh, Biden and Harris and then post about it and say that he's he's for them. But, you know, Hollywood is a, is a really it seems to be a really polarizing place. And this year may be the most polarizing I've ever I've ever seen it. And I don't know who I don't know who the next person is is going to come out for who I don't know what's going to going to be next. But I think we're probably you know, it's not going to end with Dwayne Johnson. I think that this might just be, you know, five weeks to the election. We might start seeing something like every other day. Anyone out there can have
1: their their soapbox. I think so. I mean, it's not that I'm like going out try, seeking out John Voigt movies or whatever to watch, especially, you know, he's he's a fine actor. Um, I will say that, like seeing him full heartedly endorse Trump makes me like him a little bit less but I also like you know like he hasn't committed a crime he's just some actor who has an opinion good for him who cares and uh, you know if if John Voigt was in a movie that I desperately wanted to see I'm not gonna boycott it because John Voigt was in it I, I will say he he goes to this one restaurant that uh, Alicia and I go to from time to time and uh he must live not far from me. Yeah, and, I've seen him uh, there too. And I, I wonder <laughs> if the stairs, you know, when we were still allowed to go to restaurants, if the stairs were kind of like piling up on him, you know, mm-hmm. when he started getting like that. Because, you know, in the middle of uh, the the San Fernando Valley, that's maybe not the most popular stance to, you know, to full throatedly take. But there are, there are plenty of people like that. I mean, you know, look, Joe Rogan has said that he would vote for Donald Trump, and I don't think it's hurt him one bit. And yeah. uh, I don't. I never listened to his show before that. I don't listen to it now. You know, it, it had literally no impact on my listenership, but uh, you know, I, I, it would be hard for me to say if I found out that, you know, Terry gross was uh, was a hardcore Trump fan. Would I still listen to her on fresh air? Eh, mm-hmm. I don't know. Something tells me Terry Gross is not uh, wearing the MAGA no, hat. No, no, I, so. I think it's absolutely obvious that she isn't. <laughs> I'm just saying, like, s- somebody who who's, whose work I really admire and followed, this is the thing that people honestly don't get, I think, a lot of times when you're not in Hollywood, is that people think we're a bunch of, you know, flower children liberals out here, and there's a surprising amount of conservatism out here. And, um, and which I would say actually,
2: centrists as well, middle of the
1: roads. I mean, it's like sure. uh, you get a, a lot of those as well. I mean, I, I have talked a little bit about, I don't know that any of it ever made on the podcast, but like uh, at one point when I was uh, getting ready to make my movie, I was warned not to have a, a woman be a DP. And I almost hired the woman that I met that day. Who? Out of just spite. To, yeah. Just out okay. of spite to the producer yeah. who said that. Cause she would have done a fine job. It's just, yeah. you know, when I met Walt Lloyd, he was like the perfect person for the job. And, and, and I love Walt and Walt's amazing. But, you know, like you will hear, you will hear sexism, you will hear racism, and people will act like it's, it's normal and they're just truth-tellers or they're just edgy people. It's not, I think, the, the liberal bastion that a lot of people think it is, which is why it actually surprised me a little bit that Dwayne Johnson took that stance. But you know, I also feel like Dwayne Johnson is someone whose entire message is optimistic all the time and the trump message i think it's fair to say not the most optimistic message ever being shot at us you know it's american carnage and you know fake news and it's it's sort of a spite presidency like there's so much spite and grievance in it and for whatever it's worth biden is trying to be the opposite of that
2: yeah yeah i think you're right uh, i think that's a good place to leave it why don't we get to the interview with julie taymor here she is <laughs>
0: The Cinematography Podcast Interview. So
1: we are extremely excited to be here with theater and film legend, Julie Taymor. My God, it's a big deal. And uh, your new movie, Gloria's. uh, Actually, I haven't heard exactly when it's coming out.
3: 30th on Amazon Prime and many other platforms. So you can, if you don't have Amazon Prime, you get it free. And the new trailer is out yesterday. It just came out, the full trailer.
1: Oh, great. Well, we can post that in our show notes, of course. So, amazing work, first off, and very visual work. Now, you have worked on a few films with Rodrigo Predo, correct? Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh- uh, and and the thing is that I find your career fascinating because you you straddle the worlds of film and theater in a way. And actually, my first the first question I want to ask you is from a friend of mine who was described as the Julie Taymor of L. A. theater. His name is Jamie Robletto, He's a phenomenal director. And he wanted to before I even get into anything, I wanted to ask how has your experience staging for theater, where the relation to the audience is in three dimensional space, influenced your camera work on film, and has your film work influenced your work on stage?
3: Yes. <laughs> I mean, I say that what I do on stage is highly cinematic, Mm -hmm. and what I do in film is highly theatrical. Not always, but I kind of bring both experiences into those two platforms, to those two media. You know, something like The Lion King, the audience is surrounded. You don't get that on film. I mean, film is two-dimensional, or television. It's two-dimensional, but... you you can play around with camera movement. You can, you know, you can get the feeling, the audience can feel like it's moving by the camera, by the camera movement, by the angle, by, you know. And I think that with uh, Steadicam, I think people got a little spoiled, young filmmakers, (laughs) and they got, you know, I'm being polite here, but they don't use the camera to tell the story. They they use it as an efficiency. You know, okay, we just move in and follow. As opposed to, and I can give this as an example with Rodrigo, he was, when we did Frida, he is great at handheld camera. And not, not cam, but handheld. Yeah. And I, my feeling is that you do not use the handheld, which has, you know, movement in it, unless the scene calls for agitation, unless yeah. the scene calls for that energy. I would say, I'm sure that's common, but I see it way too much in TV, way too much. I mean, first of all, it's not the way we see. You know, when I see moving camera on television, I get dizzy and I want to turn it off. You know, that that old style thing. Because when we focus on something in cinema, I'm looking at you. I'm not seeing the background. And and in theater, it's even more so. Lighting is cinematography in theater. When you, uh, I I work with Don Holder a lot, a great, great uh, lighting designer. If you have a, a light on a person in a stage that's crowded with people, the audience knows where to focus. In a movie, that's a close up. Yeah. The equivalent is a close-up. And if you have someone who is lit, you really wipe out the rest of the scene to a degree. You know, you can put other lighting, but you know, you balance it that way. With cinematography, of course, you do it through what kind of lens are you using? Do you want to be out of focus behind? How deep you want the focus? No, I'm not a biggie on knowing lenses. I know what I want and I can communicate that to a cinematographer. Yeah.
1: Well, and especially if you have somebody like Rodrigo Prieto.
3: <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, yeah. No, he, he and I just love working together.
1: Mm -hmm. So in Gloria's, there's sort of a a brilliant kind of metaphorical uh, framing device, if you will, where you have Gloria Steinem at various ages and all of her herself's on a bus ride, sort of able to engage in, in dialogue with each other, which actually feels to me almost more like something I would see in a play than something I often see in films. Where did that idea come from? Was that, was that something that came from your theater background? Was that something that was already in the script?
3: It just came from, I think it's the way that I think, which is, Ooh. and the way that I work in film or, or in theater or opera. I have a sprawling road book that mm-hmm. I have to make into a road picture of a certain length. It covers 80 years of a woman's life, yeah, and so yeah. many, many decades of costume, of location, of everything. So what is the unifying principle? What is going to keep all these disparate— with 100 locations in India, and Chicago, New York, uh, Minneapolis, Houston, South Dakota, you know, Miami— So you've got all of these elements, and you need something that is the glue, the spine. And what I call this activity or whatever, what I do is I'm trying to get the ideograph of the whole piece, Mm -hmm. abstracting it down to a single concept. It can be a visual concept. It could be sound. It's like a leitmotif in music, you know, and what would that be? And I said, well, this is a journey across America, the Greyhound bus is the archetypal american image that that would represent a road the road traveling and yeah. the road with this beautiful you know uh perspective which you can be above or below or low has the yellow slashed line so that bus where the all the glorias can congregate they're either alone on the bus or in pairs or four of them sometimes they're even four on but they're not really together like when the fathers died You know, Mm. they each have their own way of looking out the window and seeing the car that meant so much to them of the father. You know, they're not really together. It's abstract, it's surrealistic, it's poetic, it's cinematic. I actually wouldn't be able to do that in theater. I mean, I try to do in cinema what I can't do in theater. And what I do in theater is not what theater can do. Like The Lion King, it was a movie, I put it on stage. Juan Darien, it's it's a magical realist tale, I put it on stage. You know, Mm. I'm... I, I love to find, and sometimes I'll use puppetry because I can play with scale in the theater. Like a giant head, and that's a close-up with a crystal tear coming out of the eye.
0: Mm-hmm. It's a
3: close-up of a tear. So I do work differently, but I, I, back to the bus. The bus, uh, I decided, and Rodrigo was completely with me on this, to make it black and white because I didn't want the audience as they're watching the viewers to think, okay, this is the next scene. It's not, it's it's jumping into an interior landscape that we have exteriorized.
1: Mm I guess I sort of feel like that kind of storytelling device is something I'm used to seeing in a play. And it's refreshing and interesting to see it done cinematically because uh, so few films are kind of willing to kind of move into into a surrealistic look. Um, I'm always curious why more theater directors don't do film and vice versa. Like why why those two disciplines feel like there's a there's a wall between them. Well, there is.
3: honestly, most theater directors are not visual. They're about uh, the play, dialogue and actors and movement and staging, but they're yeah. not because most most plays, not the ones I do, not Shakespeare, but most plays are in a living room, uh, office building, uh, you know, there's like five or six seats. Yeah. So there are very good directors who do move back and forth, but it isn't common. Mike Dickles was one of the best, you know, who moved very well and was able to move in theater and film. Uh, Zeffirelli was very famous for very splendiferous operas, and he was obviously a very visual filmmaker. Uh, Sam Mendes, both. You know, there are, there are directors who are equally talented in both, both uh, mediums.
1: But I think even of the people that you just listed, the work that you do brings a visual punch to it. Like the visual punch is often part of the point, the work with the actors and everything in, in all of your films, and I think I've seen all of them, is really you know amazing and strong, like uh, going way back to Titus. Like, you I know, love like, Titus,
3: it's my favorite. <laughs> I,
1: I, I love that, And but I'm thinking about that visual when the daughter's hands are cut off and they're like tree limbs on the stumps and just the, the visual punch of that. But then you have that kind of stuff in Gloria's where you have these transitional things like the Wizard of Oz inspired uh, sequences, which again, you couldn't do that exactly like that in theater, but you do see kind of surrealistic or expressionistic things done in theater. And I feel like we don't see that that kind of uh, look or feel done today. Can you talk about the construction of those sequences in you know, Glorious, where you came up with those ideas? Again, were those in the script or were those I developed? I wrote them into the script. So got it, got
3: it. I think that, yeah, early movies had it. Mm Murnau, Lang, you know, Metropolis, the early German expressionist films were highly stylized and theatrical realistic because they couldn't go on location. They didn't have light enough cameras. They didn't have the money, whatever. So as soon as cameras and video cameras became so easy, people got stuck on realism, on what what they call realism, what they call naturalism. And then with, with um, green screen and blue screen and post, you can make Titanic or you can make uh, something that you can't actually shoot look real. And people get very upset when it's stylized. Like The Tempest, I absolutely adore Ben Wishaw as Ariel in The Tempest. But some people think it's cheesy because it's clearly a visual effect. You yeah. know, it's very much going uh, after an old photographic thing. Um, remember the horses? like where you see the after image moving. I did that on purpose. I mm-hmm. think there's something beautiful and it's about air and it is to be abstract, but people have gotten very, with television and all, they got very literal minded. Now I think we're changing. I mean, something like uh, Watchmen is very surrealistic, mm. right? Very. Then, but most of what you see in drama and all the, the, you know, the detective stuff is ultra realism. So there are directors out there who are beginning to use more and more stylized imagery to tell their stories. And I know the audiences are hungry for it Mm -hmm. because even Marvel Comics is not reality, but they make it feel like it's real. You know, Superman or Spider-Man's flying. It better look like it's real as crappy as it looks. So, (laughs) uh, you know, I think that way. You asked, how do I get to these things? Well, there's a scene, the tornado scene where the younger Gloria, Alicia Vikander, is being asked by a journalist if, if she's offended that he thinks of her as a very attractive sex object. And at that age, which is pre-40 or, you know, she's like early 20s, she um, doesn't have anything to say. She's so shocked that he says such an incredible remark. And of course, in my film, Julianne Moore then takes her place. They look the same, although she's older. And yeah. she, she is able to answer him because as Gloria got older, she had an answer. But in reality, in reality, Gloria Steinem says nothing. And I was interested behind the smile and the enigmatic expression, what's she thinking? Mm -hmm. What are women thinking? What did Hillary think when Trump was stalking her in that incredible moment in their debates? Did she say what she was thinking? Of course not. She couldn't. Like many women can't say what they're thinking, what they'd love to say when someone comes up with these outrageous racist or sexist comments. Mm -hmm. Uh, So what I do is I visualize what she's thinking. So it might be a two second thought or three second thought, but... I open it up and I create all the four Glorias answer his question about their uniform. And I create a tornado, like he swept up this this interviewer, TV interviewer, into the tornado that is inspired by The Wizard of Oz, but we also have... The little girl on a broom, like a Harry Potter witch. I bring up the whole witch bitch phenomenon and all (laughs) the Glorias we suspended with green screen. You know, they didn't know what the hell the scene was about or what it was. I (laughs) I had more people going, "Really? What is this about?" And I just said, "Look, did Gloria make this up? No, it's my contribution. It's my contribution (laughs) to the story." But now, once they saw it, because a lot of the work. The the first part, Rodrigo was able to cinematography. So Rodrigo, we took our studio that Kim Jennings designed, our TV studio, and he lit it to start to turn red. And our special effects, we had it smoking and we had the wind blowing the curtains and all of that. We get to a certain point, we get all the intimacy of the four Glorias doing their action. The dress that gets blown up, the the, um, nun's habit, and we see the (laughs) big boy bunny and all that. Then we get to a point where... We're transitioning into the tornado. That's when I went to the, the, another studio a week later. We hooked up our various Glorias. We had a huge crane that, that Rodrigo was operating. We had the special effects guy with wires attached to each woman one at a time as they were zooming around in space. And I said, It will be the camera moving, is what will create the feeling that they're flying. Yeah. And I knew that most of this was going to be a post-production affair. So then I had very good houses on the whole film, working all over the world, you know, but mostly in Canada and various houses in America and New York to create this, it's complete CGI, the tornado and the backgrounds. And I decided to layer it more red because when it was in full color, it, you, it felt, it didn't feel uh, stylized enough. So the, the the red emotion that is not just anger, it's witty mischief. That's really what it is. And then of course, when the poor interviewer is spinning around in his chair in the center of this tornado and they're going double, double toil and trouble and you've got the witches from Macbeth and you've got the little girl Catholic. You know they're playfully tormenting him. He comes back down and we're back in the studio and behind the glass wall, the engineers and the assistant to the director who's shooting this interview says, what's she doing and the young woman (laughs) his assistant says not answering him so you get it it's an inner hallucination if you want and i had six or seven of these different kinds of things like gloria said in one of her books um by the time i was in my 50s i felt like i was on a treadmill well i took it literally and i made a treadmill highway which is our theme and she's running and we had Julianne Moore in the studio running on a little treadmill on a real little treadmill which she's going, what am I doing here? You know, she, she couldn't, nobody really sees what I'm seeing. That is troubled. I mean, we did do, it wasn't really storyboards but Kim Jennings, our production designer would do drawings to it. That,
1: that was what I was gonna ask you too. Like, you know, cause these sequences are so amazingly visual. And I don't know if you would say expressionistic. Is that the right term?
3: Some of them are, but some of them are just surreal as you would say, yeah.
1: But I, I was just curious about like how you go about as a visual stylist, how you go about creating them, because they are kind of a departure in that moment of the movie from kind of the the dialogue and character and you know just the the narrative part, the part that is most naturalistic about it, and and they're this you know wild carnivalesque departure that really as an audience kind of, you know, pulls me in and makes me lean forward. Cause I don't know, I'm not used to movies doing this cause so few, you know, outside of people like David Lynch, nobody does stuff like this right now. And so it's so exciting to see that happen. I, I'm just curious how you build those sequences. Like, and well, and I guess you just said you didn't necessarily storyboard them. But, they, no, I, mean, but,
3: but I draw, but it's more that uh, Kim Jennings, as I said, production designer, she had a lookbook this big for the film. Yeah. So I wrote it in the script, what the image is. I wrote it fully. So it says what you're supposed to. She's really right, okay. on highways, like an Escher painting. You know, so yeah. what I'll do with the visual effects, I, I collect the material with the green screen, I know that the camera, you know, I give freedom to the to Rodrigo, like, let's get a low angle, let's get a side angle, you know, I've got to have the tools, I've got to have the uh, materials. And then I gave, I remember with the um, the treadmill image, which I love, you know, the only color is the yellow slash line in the red sh- boots, yeah. because that alludes to the red shoes of uh, Powell's film, you know, the Red Shoes where you can't stop running or stop dancing, the ballet slippers, to the ruby slippers in A Wizard of Oz, you know, and that's such a motif in the film. Uh, And then I say to the visual effects person, I can't remember who at that time, sorry, because there's a big list of those, this is what I'd like to see. And I let him come up with stuff. And I had great people, great artists, these are real artists in their own right, who can work with uh, photographic material. And I don't really like a lot of CGI, so even, Kyle Cooper, who I've worked with a lot, he did The Tempest, he did Titus. I wanted him to work on this and he wasn't available, but he's done um, Across the Universe. My mm. God, Kyle's work on that is Gorgeous. astounding prologue. So I let these artists come up with stuff and it, it then it's a dialogue and then that inspires me. And I say, I like that. Now the person who started the highway didn't finish it. He couldn't get past a certain point, but we took his material which we had paid for, and we gave it to another house to finish. Uh, mm. And so other things were added, like the treadmill. I love the way you see a treadmill and then the highway. You know, the way that yeah. camera? It's gorgeous. So it's it's gorgeous. And then there's the the sequence that I think is so beautiful when the 12-year-old who is dreams of being a tap dancer in Hollywood, she's, her mother has sent out the police to get her because her mother's really um, out of her mind, literally. And the police are bringing her back in this very poor neighborhood in East Toledo, where she lived. And she's seeing these, these houses. And all of a sudden she hears the distant sound of, of tap dancing. And the houses become Hollywood Boulevard, but of the yeah. imagination. And yeah. I used, you know, I, I I brought forth, we brought forth images to give to the Visual Effects House. And they came up with different poetic pieces. And I said, you got it there. Too much color. Limit it to <laughs> golds and and bronzes and warm colors. Uh, too too many, it's too clear, it's too real. Make the lights hazy, you know. So It is a long distance dialogue uh, that I'm having with people who are brilliant, who I never saw. I mean, we didn't even Zoom like this back then, before COVID. So (laughs) I would have these dialogues and we would get, Know what we would do is we would put the scenes on the computer and we would be, I forgot what it's called, but we had the tools to be able to draw Mm -hmm. points, you know, shove it over. So there are these great tools for visual effects now that directors can work really, really well with people who are off in Montreal or Vancouver or LA from New York. So I I think they're very different. All the the kind of surrealistic moments. There's not one, it's not like just paintings coming alive, which is what I did with Frida. These are are for for different emotional moments. Mm -hmm. You know, the tap dancing, the tornado, the running on the conveyor belt, Another one is when uh, Dorothy Pittman Hughes and Gloria are out there on speak. So this is a perfect example. They go out on a tour of speaking at, to large audiences about women's liberation, about politics. I didn't have the money to go and r- get all of these extras and <laughs> we're all in Savannah for 90% of the film anyway. And so w- what I did was we put them on a turntable with green screen and our cameras shot them turning. Different sizes. I knew I could double them up. I could do a lot of things with that material. I, I was very simple about it. I didn't. I didn't do all those things. But what we did do was we played with light on them, changing. Yeah. So yeah. then, in visual effects, we took documentary footage of all these various marches or uh, speaking tours, outdoors, indoors, in auditoriums where the light changed, and a an incredible montage was created. But the concentration is on these women turning, and the entire speech is one evolution until we're behind them, and then we do a snap, and it's the famous picture of Dorothy Pittman Hughes and Gloria Steinem with their arms raised yeah. at the end and that's a very very it was in the women's March. man I want to go, go
1: rewatch that sequence now, and again, that, does, that just, like you know I've seen giant turntables employed in theater and, and stuff like that, and it seems like it's just uh, not that it's a theatrical solution to a cinematic challenge but it's more like just figuring out a way that you can stage something simply but with a visual panache which is what you you got to do in theater uh, you keep bringing up the idea of like motifs and, uh, and and color restriction and stuff like that and I just kind of wanted to know where do those ideas come from for you like when you're when you're setting out to make a movie where do you come up with kind of the the rules that you're going tells
3: me? for instance, Frida, it was so colorful, right? Because because Mexico City at that era in the 20s and 30s, there was no pollution. And we know the uh, color of azul, the blue, the blue house, the, mm. the colors of her paintings. Mexico is vibrant color. People think, oh, Frida Kahlo's story is so dark. Why is it so colorful? Look at her paintings. Look at the bows. Look at these beautiful costumes that she wore of the embroidery Mexican. Now, we had the limitation that in the script, it says she and Diego are in New York walking down Fifth Avenue. We don't have the money. So the set designer and with Rodrigo Prieto, we thought about, okay, we're going to have to do this with uh, a collage. So if you remember Frida, they walk through a black and white collage of mm-hmm. photographs, which is infinitely more interesting than walking down Fifth Avenue. Then we got <laughs> Rockefeller Center into Rockefeller's office, which we, which the production designer um, Felipe Fernandez built in, in a studio in Churubusco in Mexico. And I said, we have to do Paris and New York were the two other locations. So with color correction, which was new for us back then, this is in 2002, yeah. we sat there um, and we were able to change the color. I said, New York should all be Art Deco. So everything will be black, white, silver, metals, uh, bronze, steel, because it's Art Deco New York, that's the period. Paris, where we, we had all of this incredible, Eiffel was the, I, the one who designed the Eiffel Tower. He had also built um, in, a, in one of the hotels in Mexico City a fantastic elevator that had all that kind of nouveau style. And we found a town in Puebla that had many of the architecture that looked like New Orleans, you know, it had this beautiful mm-hmm. intricate architecture. And I said, we're going to limit the colors to pastels. So the beautiful, vibrant colors of Mexico were in contrast to the control of color, the palette control for Paris and for New York. That was because we had no money. But you see, I think you can do many, many great things when you're limited. And, and you know, I think that it's important to say, if you don't need to move the camera, don't. Let the camera and really think about a wide shot, the power of that or a slow moving, you know, your cinematography, so I shouldn't be saying this because it's kind of
1: 101. No, this is, this is what we, our listeners uh, are craving to hear and they want to hear it obviously from people. You no, know, we just do too, too much editing,
3: just too much cutting all the time. You know, sometimes you have to because the performances require it, but you know, and with, this is the first time I have shot in video, so I prefer film and I still prefer film and we did put grain on our film Mm -hmm. doesn't look like it now that I see it on you know uh television but we did pay for the grain look I've got this called that there is a thing because the black and white in particular it's just too clear for me I love the mystery of grain I love what it does to lighting but Rodrigo's very aware of that because he shoots mostly in film and now he's gotten used to you know being able to but I don't use multiple cameras unless I have to because again, you can't light specifically for all those cameras, right? Mm-hmm. Except for if you can move fast, if you're you know, television or something. But I, I, even in Titus, you know, we had the possibility of B camera, and he was there, and sometimes B camera gets things that are just, "Wow, that's fabulous. Let's put it in. And there's a lot of that in this film, where we look at it, we say, we need that now, you know, we, yeah. you could use it, like if you're in the March on Washington, I definitely had B camera, C camera, because it's crowd and we didn't have a lot of time. So you do need those cameras to pick up B roll and sometimes that footage if, helps if you have a bad edit, but it also is it's just lucky if it's more exciting.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, cool. Well, I know that our time with you is over I, and I wish I could talk to you more. So maybe after the movie's open, you'd be willing to come back on because I just love your insights. And I feel like you would have a lot for our listeners. So I, we very much appreciate that you, you came out and encourage all of our listeners to check out Gloria's when it drops on Amazon.
3: Thank you so much.
1: Thank you. All right. That was Julie Taymor. I wish we could have had more time with Julie, but she is on a press tour with Gloria's. And so we had 30 minutes but I think we 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 really got a lot of stuff in there and uh I really learned a lot listen you know listening to her talk and uh you know I just love talking to someone who's just friggin smart about what they do. Yeah she's really worldly too. She's been like all over the, all over the planet and done theater
2: like everywhere too. So like really amazing stuff. So she's got a, she's got a good bio. Yeah.
1: And her movies are, I, I think her movies are super impressive. Uh, I, I went and saw her first feature, which was the uh, adaptation of Shakespeare's Titus Andronicus starring Anthony Hopkins. I saw oh, lightweight the theater. Anthony Hopkins. Oof. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's like, you're going to make a movie. You're not just making a movie. You're making, you're, you're doing Shakespeare. And as I have learned the hard way, Shakespeare is about as hard as anything is to do and she's made two Shakespeare. I I met Anthony Hopkins for about
2: 10 minutes, maybe 12 years ago And uh, he was reciting Mm -hmm. poetry for a Greenpeace commercial. And let me tell you uh, The gravity of that guy could read the phone book and the gravity in which he says it I would listen to him for hours reading, you know, Smith
1: Smith a Smith B (laughs) (laughs) That guy's incredible. Yeah he is, he is one of the greats. But yeah, everybody uh, check out Gloria's if you can. Okay. So Ben, S- bill paying time.
2: Time to pay some more bills. Yeah,
1: yeah, I love paying bills.
2: <laughs> all right. So first of all, we got to you know give a quick shout out to the contest that we're sponsoring with the Wonderlust Collective and a bunch of uh, other friends. Go to at the Cinepod on Instagram. Click on our link in bio to enter the giveaway, which is uh, got all these wonderful people involved and we're giving away a Sony a7S three camera and a prize package worth. I'm doing it right now. I'm you totally should do doing it. it. Well, right except that second. you're not eligible, but but go go right go right ahead. Ah. So you know, it'll it'll be fun. It'll be one
1: extra. You know. Well, let me ask you. Can I have a, an A seven S Mark three? Can you just no, give me one? No, I can't do that.
2: That's thirty five hundred dollars, ah. Ben. You know, I, I love you, but uh, but oh, I, I clearly clearly uh, you you don't understand my finances. So.
1: <laughs> fair that's fair.
2: uh yeah i was explaining to someone the other day that the podcast even though we have these commercials and we're doing this stuff it costs us money rather than makes us money but you know the, the goal is that
1: some- that is the case with like literally every podcast they all kind of talk about. i mean i think that there are some podcasts that that are way in the black but clearly uh, joe rogan making yeah. money oh yeah mark maron like that like you know script notes which i talk about all the time like you know those two uh, hosts have said yeah they do it for the love of it they say that all the money they've ever brought in just kind of goes to handle the bandwidth and the expenses and you know all that well you know
2: what uh and that's exactly what's happening here wonderless collective go uh, enter the contest win something it'll be great um yeah go to the cinepod Instagram you have to follow us you have to follow a few other people but then voila you're entered in the contest and someone in the world somewhere is going to win They tell me they're taking care of the worldwide shipping. So uh, so yeah anyone anywhere And that camera is gonna kick all the ass. I cannot wait to use that camera. It's for It's pretty darn impressive. That's for sure Okay, so now we have commercial number two uh, Actually, I know <gasps> believe it or not. Sorry. Sorry for you people out there who didn't want to hear a second commercial but uh, we got to thank our returning sponsor aperture aperture Returning champion. That's right. Aperture has uh, sponsored us again for another year here, and they have a new cool light. They call the Accent B7C. Like all Aperture products, mm-hmm. just rolls off the tongue. A- Accent B7C is something a little bit different. If I know that you're sort of like one of those Philips Hue people, Ben, this
1: is something similar to that. I do have Philips Hue all, all throughout my house. It's pretty awesome. Yeah.
2: So this is a practical Edison base light bulb. It's a seven really? seven watt RGB WW LED. So essentially, you put pl- you. Screw it right into your base. And then you can adjust the color temperature in white from 2000 Kelvin, which is very, very warm, to 10,000, which is very, very cool. And then it's got a bunch of other things too. You can adjust the hue, the saturation, the intensity with the red, green, and blue. Covers about 90% of the colors, they say, within what is known as Rec 2020, which is a color space uh, used for cinema. And of course, what this does is it gives uh, cinematographers, uh, content creators, people out there who need to match. Uh, practical light meaning like a light that you might see inside of a lamp or something in a location uh, to the same color temperature as their expensive cinema lights. so uh, Aperture went out and made this thing it's actually got a battery inside of it so you can do like a, you know an Uncle Fester from the uh, from the Adams family <laughs> you literally can take it and stick it in your mouth you probably shouldn't stick it in your mouth but it will glow don't, It'll, don't no, stick no, it in no, your don't, mouth don't do that but yeah it's got a battery inside so it is le- it can be you could charge it inside your lamp you take it out and voila your lamp doesn't actually have to have a cord so for the, someone out there who you know was willing to charge a light bulb and carry it around with them or use it as a flashlight it's a very clever thing it, it'll set you back 70 bucks and of course it's available at hot rod cameras but i think that our first batch might already you know i don't think we're technically supposed to be having pre-orders but i think by the time this episode goes live uh pre-orders i think will be active and i will tell you that uh we ordered hundreds and hundreds of them and i know a bunch have already like
1: people have been like set them aside for me the moment i then i can get a hold of this i, I want it and it's really can i tell you what I, what I would love to do with that light sure I would love to put that in a Chinese lantern. Yeah, you could totally put it in a
2: Chinese lantern, but seven watts, not that bright. You might want to put like five of them in there. So put like five in there and you can control them all with an app on your phone. So yeah, that would be, that would be the,
1: that's pretty sweet. That'd
2: be pretty nice. So, all right. So, uh, aperture, accent, B7C, uh, get it at hot rod cameras and, uh, yeah. And now short ends. So, Ben, it's time for our famed short ends. What's your... Uh, sh- Famous. Yeah, what's your short end this this
1: week? I, mine is kind of a short end within a short end. It's kind of a what? Russian nesting doll of short ends. <laughs> a turducken of short ends, if you will. <laughs> you, you've um, My brain went to like
2: Orphan Black. It is the nesting doll of nesting doll of nesting doll. It's the... Okay. <laughs> uh, how, how many different levels
1: you got here? So, my short end is... It's AP Bio, which is a show that is on NBC. Mm-hmm. But... Here's why I watched it. Not that I have anything against NBC, but recently Peacock, which is NBC's streaming service, became available on Roku. So I was able to download that onto Roku and I watched some stuff. I I watched a a great Joe Dante movie called Matinee that uh, was made in Orlando where I was going to film school, but also where I grew up and literally shot in my uh, junior high school auditorium. Sorry, you're making a face.
2: Yeah, I'm um, I'm blanking on his name right now, but I, I know who star- stars in this. It's um John Goodman. John Goodman. Thank you very much. You you yeah. you, you you beat me to it.
1: Yeah, yeah. No, mane So I watched that, and I was kind of clicking around on Peacock, and I was like, AP Bio." It's got Patton Oswalt in it. I love Patton Oswalt, and so I uh, started watching it, and it's it reminds me of Community a little bit. The you know the Dan Harmon uh, thing. Yeah, absolutely. That was on a few years ago. Great, great job. In um, that. You, in that you have a really pissed off person who's in a situation that he doesn't want to be in. In this case, he's like a former Harvard professor who's been kind of disowned by Harvard and took a job teaching AP Bio at a Toledo high school. And instead of the study group from community, it's like the students who are all very interesting, amazing young actors. And, and so here's the third level, the, the inception third level of, of Dreamland, is that uh, the cinematography in the show is extremely stylized and it's not just the cinematography it's the art direction it's everything and it has that extreme orange and teal look Mm. it's it's kind of the soft version of it it's not the michael bay edgy uh edge detection like make it look gritty version it's like it's like that with a black pro mist kind of a kind of a look on it so it has uh two dps nick Madrud or and blake mcclure although it looks like blake mcclure has shot the the bulk of it and it, it really does like everyone the the locations and everything kind of have like this teal look that people's clothes often are teal and then like their their faces are kind of popping orange and in fact i uh on facebook i kind of said like who likes ap bio and one of the people who responded was guest of our show bill totolo oh yeah yeah Who said he couldn't get past the grade Um, and I thought I thought that was an interesting thing because I mean I I think it's a really funny show but it also is like one of those things where comedy over the last you know probably 15 20 years you know what would have been a sitcom shot in front of a live audience, kind of with... they. It's not that they don't look good, but they all kind of looked the same for the most part. Now, you know, we have single-camera comedy like this that often veers into being kind of stylized, and I feel like this is actually a pretty stylized-looking show. It It's not like, you know, going for a big, you know, techno-crane shot all the time, but it really does use the cinematic tools to its advantage. And, uh, yeah, for fans of the orange and teal look, which I feel like is the... Like it's the equivalent of in the 1980s, the the shafts of light through smoke uh, Venetian look. blinds. Or yeah, it's kind of it's kind of the look that will peg you'll you'll say okay, like this was made during those years because you know the idea being behind the orange and teal thing is that uh, your skin tones, you know, if if you're to look at them on a scope, they kind of land a little orange, and so if you kind of go in the opposite direction on the color wheel from your skin tones, it's kind of this bluish teal look. And you see it happen in tons and tons of movies where the sets are kind of, they lean bluish and then in the grade, they take it even further. Hmm. And I feel like it's interesting to look at it. I think the show is hilarious, by the way. Like I I have enjoyed every episode, but uh, it's interesting to look at it because I kind of thought that we might've been out of orange and teal land and we are not. And I'll only say one more thing about AP Bio is that seasons one and two, which I guess aired on regular old NBC you can watch for free. Peacock is free. It's ad supported. Nice. Um, there Were there, there a lot of ads, thir-
2: or not, not so many.
1: Not uh, less, fewer than you would watch on network television. Oh, well, that's um, not bad. Not bad at all. But but anyway, the third season is behind the paywall, and they mm. they are kind of trying to. They're trying an experiment with Peacock. So like CBS All Access, I think is five dollars a month or six dollars a month, no matter what, and that's there's one price. And I think you can pay a higher price and and lose the ads kind of like you can on Hulu. With Peacock, it's NBC Universal content. Like, it's their version of HBO Max. That's Warner Brothers. This is Universal. And the base level of it is free. But there are things, like, as you're looking through the menus to see what you want to watch, there are things that you you see immediately. It's like, you know, it's for premium members only. Ooh, Uh, I see. Premium Peacock. it it's interesting to watch how the streamers are kind of experimenting you know cuz they're not netflix necessarily and they're not amazon prime they're they're a different thing there's something we're used to getting for free on any cable system or even on a satellite not a satellite dish but like a, a friggin antenna you can watch nbc so they're they're kind of treading into it and trying some stuff out so it'll be interesting to see how it all settles but uh if you have roku or any of the other many devices you can finally download peacock which i guess they were in like a some kind of a money related war with uh with roku and currently hbo max still not available I I did not watch
2: AP bio from the beginning. I I, at all, I I caught like one or two episodes somewhere in the middle. I have no idea what season it was that that I saw, but I don't remember the whole orange and teal thing. So I don't wonder if, I wonder if that continues through the whole show. I wonder if that's their, their, if that changes. I mean, I'm
1: only in the first season still, so I don't know if they did it in the second season, but it's pretty noticeable because it's like, it, it ripples into wardrobe. It ripples into props. Hmm. It ripples. It's, it's like clearly they have made a decision to go, orange and teal like almost a parody of orange and teal i would love to talk to the dp and find out what you know like what the marching orders were and what brought about that look Uh, well
2: perhaps we can make that happen maybe we'll see so uh i I got technology for my short end again this this week it has been uh we we sent out a newsletter uh hot ride cameras i should say sent out a newsletter and which we call it the uh great camera summer picnic going on, because all the manufacturers mm. have released another camera this summer. Uh, Canon had already released two this summer, they came out with a third one this past week, and now I can talk about it because I was able to get my hands on it and really actually get to play around with it quite a bit. It is called the C70, so C like Charles, 70. uh and if, if this is not your thing or you're under a rock, but you've heard of a camera called the Red Komodo. I think they're going headlong, going for those same sort of customers who are interested in the Red Komodo because it's a really small, almost DSLR styled camera, but it's a 4K digital cinema camera, and uh, it's $500 cheaper than the Komodo, and it offers a flip-out monitor and a bunch of other sort of uh, high frame rate features and things that the Komodo doesn't have, but is a little bit larger. What
1: what size sensor is
2: it? It's a Super 35 sensor, the same okay. same same as a Komodo. So. Um, yeah it's it's interesting and uh, runs- will
1: everyone hate me if I admit that I didn't know what size sensor the Komodo had until you just said that no
2: I, I don't think so at all because that's again not you know it's a camera that's sort of been released in a beta form right now they haven't really released the final phase of that camera but it has a lot of buzz it's had a lot of heat I would say it might be the hottest camera to be in a previous short end on the show here for me as well but there have been so many new cameras like the a7s3 that we're giving away which is another yeah. really hot camera and then of course Blackmagic released a 12k camera so it's like there's a lot of yeah, stuff happen-
1: what, what's up with that who needs 12k oh, that just sound that sounds like a nightmare for me <laughs> a, you know just storage and you know
2: like you can only you record can- black magic raw like b-raw that's the only format and it surprisingly small file sizes for a lot of that so you can do some kind of incredible stuff and not totally kill your your file sizes man
1: i i mean i'm not saying that i disbelieve them because i don't know but i'm deeply skeptical about 12k yeah I, I understand but hey
2: we're supposed to be talking about the c70 right now i'll tell you the thing's really small it's got an rf mount which is canon sort of new mount uh hot rod cameras makes a pl mount to go on uh the komodo and on the c70 and uh it was really cool is, oh
1: so you can do that again
2: oh yes so uh, it comes with a canon rf See,
1: people might not know this about you but like when you started out hot rod cameras you were making a pl mount for the panasonic cameras the gh2 i believe uh gh1 and, yeah GH1 and you could do it for the Canon like the 5D and the 70 but it was like a mod you had to like Surgery. basically yeah yeah, yeah, major you surgery. Had to, you had to destroy the camera, uh, so it was only a PL mount camera from that moment forward. Correct. And we've been uh, very influential in the industry. We've been ripped off
2: by a lot of people, both American companies and foreign companies. They've all released versions of our mounts, and we sort of took a hiatus from that. That's not something we were really doing for the last few years, uh, you know. But I've figured out a few different ways to kind of make the best version of our adapter ever. And I figured, you know, why not? Since there's so many cool new cameras coming out with all these short flange depths, so you can put on real cinema lenses. Uh, yeah, we're, we've built the best version of our pl mount we ever have and uh it's got some some really cool new stuff that other mounts don't have which i'm i'm really pleased about and uh we're gonna do some special deals so it's like if you're buying an rf mount camera from hot rod cameras in the next uh couple of months uh we're gonna do some really special promotion where um you're getting the a huge discount on the pl adapter since you're buying cameras from us we're gonna we're gonna do something like that it's all word of mouth right now i haven't formalized or done anything official because especially the c70 and the komodo aren't yet shipping but yeah if people you know uh pay attention to what we're doing well we're we're gonna have something uh we're gonna have something cool coming up
1: look at you with the turducken of short in there trying trying (laughs) got your product in there so how much is is the canon camera how much does it run it's going to be fifty five hundred dollars about so
2: it's going to come in about five hundred dollars less than the final version of the komodo which is rumored to be six thousand and they Pre-release version that they're charging an extra grand for right now, so it'll be fifteen hundred dollars less than that. It's about an inch uh, wider, I think, about an inch taller, and I think about an inch and a half deeper, something like that. It's, it's it but it, so it's a little it's a little bigger all the way around. It basically looks like it you picked up a five D Mark II. And uh, kind of inflated it slightly, it kind of swollen. That's what it looks like. Or it's exactly the same width as the Blackmagic 6K and Pocket 4K camera so it's exactly the same width as that. It's almost as if a Canon engineer said, "How wide can we make this? How wide's that camera?" All right, we're making it exactly the same width. So <laughs> it's, anyway, it's a it's a, it makes really good images. That you know, I, they didn't release a lot of footage with the camera initially. They didn't. They're not allowing us to show anything that we shot with a pre-release camera, um, and and that's fair because the camera is totally not done yet. But I have to say the images looked really, really good. And I th- wish they had more variety for the stuff that they released. But I know in the coming weeks that will change. And I think there's a lot of people who are going to be talking about this camera. It's going to be slightly over $5,000, but it's going to come with, you know, a monitor like the Komodo no monitor. You got to buy a monitor. You got do some stuff like Oof. that, so, but it, um, yeah, it's going to be really interesting, and the 4K 120 frames per second maximum speed in it looks
1: really good, so, wow. yeah, some, some that nice is stuff. That's insane. Yeah, so. Is all this stuff, like, being slow walked out that would have been all released at NAB if we'd had a normal year in NAB, it happened? Probably. I think that, basically, the IBC show is sort of coming up right
2: now-ish, there's going to be some sort of, uh, I think it was cancelled, but there's going to be some, there, there are a lot of announcements that were going to be made, and now mm-hmm. now we're getting them.
1: All right, so before we get into thanking everybody, we just wanna ask anyone who's still listening to us, please like and subscribe, maybe recommend us to some friends.
2: Oh yeah, and actually I did a video believe it or not about the c70 and posted it on the hot rod cameras youtube channel which believe it or not we have a youtube channel which almost never gets used but we're trying to change that and uh so yeah go go watch go watch my video go you know uh, subscribe to us on youtube we're close to a thousand subscribers already but you know that's um that's from like 10 years of occasionally putting up a random video or something
1: mm. yeah. do it do it it's all free and it really helps us and uh, supports the podcast that's and right it helps us uh, make more of these you know, yeah yeah absolutely so Ilya who do we need to thank this week oh man let's not thank anyone
2: they know they, we're, we're we're ungrateful yeah
1: they they know who they are <laughs> hey do you want to tell people where to find you uh yes you can find me at benrockonline.com in fact I just upgraded I not upgraded but I just kind of overhauled my website I uh sweet I I, I had it up there for a long time and I've been uh you got you a know, new reel to, sorry what got a new reel uh, I do have a new reel up there. Uh, and it's super violent. Ooh. And uh, please go to benrockonline.com. Check out my uh, website. You can find all my social media uh, crapola there. And that's where you can go to yell at me for being a liberal. <laughs> uh,
2: you can find me over at Hot Rod Cameras. And, uh, you know, uh, you can yell at me for being a liberal, too. That's fine. I, I can take it.
1: Oh, I, I'll, I'll take it all. <laughs> so, uh, Ilya, seriously, who do we need to thank? All right, fine. Well, thanks, some people. We'll thank Kay
2: Atrachi for not listening.
1: Yeah, I don't. I, I mean, like Kays has told me no one goes to the theater anyway. So, That's true. I mean, you know, to, to see plays. So, you know, Julie Tamar, you know, <laughs> he, he, he might be impressed. All right. Uh, <laughs> we should we should thank, uh, obviously, Alana Cody, who uh, has, has kicked so much ass in the last several weeks. I can't even begin to say she got us the day that we interviewed J- Julie Tamar. I actually had two interviews that day. And they were both with directors. We don't usually interview directors here. I don't know if we want to say who the, who the director was yet. Uh, yeah. The other one was. No, Well, we got another director next week, too, that I'm really looking forward to. So Yeah, very, very exciting stuff. But Alana's been lining up just some amazing people for us. And uh, we're just uh, cooking our way through this pandemic. By golly, we're going to interview everyone who's ever picked up a camera by the time this thing is over. Darn, Tootin. All right, so uh, let's also thank, uh, last but definitely not
2: least, Ben Katz. Ben Katz, uh, making us sound uh, halfway intelligent. Thank you, Ben.
1: And for all I know, he cut out all of my liberal musings from the first segment. (laughs) That's that's right. Everyone's going to be like, "What was he talking about?" I don't know. What was he talking about? (laughs) He didn't sound
2: liberal. (laughs) Uh, All right. Well, until next week, uh, thank you so much for listening to the Cinematography Podcast, and we'll be back with another great interview soon